Good morning again. Now we get to jump in. All right. So we are in a three-week sermon series. So this is the middle week of a sermon on friendship. All right. Last week, Pastor Gary talked about, uh, kind of spent his time talking about how Jesus modeled being a really good friend to us and why it is so important. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, if you were gone or something like that, uh, I'd encourage you to listen to it online because it's just a a sermon packed full of really some interesting and practical information. And as we were planning this sermon series, if I'm being honest, which I usually am when I'm up here, I don't, I'm honest, that sounded bad. I meant like I'm pretty vulnerable. I, one of the questions that I was asking, and I think partly because I'm asking about this in my own life, is I think if I were to ask all of you in here and you were to say, well, is friendship important? I think most people would say, there you go, good job, we're awake. Okay, early in the morning, all right? The teacher in me comes out, right? I'd say we say yes, and I think I would say that in my life too. But I think sometimes when I hear about, yeah, I know there's, like, that's important, I need to be a good friend and inviting others, it's like, how do I do that in a life that already feels really full, feels sometimes like we can add another thing in. And I think we're all at different life stages here as I look around this room, right? Some of us are in the stage, I know I have a seven to 10 year old, so my stage of life right now, I'm carting to soccer, to gymnastics, to school events, and to different things like that. Some of you might have just started a new job, whether you're 18 or whether you are 85, and it's taking a ton of mental and physical energy as you're trying to navigate that, right? Some of you might be in a new relationship, if that's dating, if that's marriage. Maybe some of you just had a baby. Maybe you've lost somebody and there's a loss of relationship, right? Somebody you counted on, a friend that's no longer in your life or somebody who has passed away, Wherever stage of life we're at, we're juggling lots of things. We're juggling relationships. We're juggling occupations. We're juggling appointments. We're juggling obligations. And we're also juggling friends and relationships. And I think as I was reflecting this week, over the past few years, we've kind of lived our life in a small bubble. Remember that? And then that bubble got a little bigger. Then the bubble got a little bigger. Then it got a little, little bit bigger. And honestly, it suddenly felt like overnight, it went, can you show that picture? It went to this, the bubble. Did anybody else relate to that? It was like, oh yeah, this is what life was like before we were in a bubble. And uh, this, is, this is not my picture, I got it offline, but how many of you have ever been to the state fair and you've looked out on that crowd? And it's been like that, right? And sometimes, if I'm being honest, I found myself this last year or two going, whoa, Where did all these things come from? Where did all these people come from? All these obligations. And sometimes it can feel like you're navigating a bunch of people on the midway or to pickle pizza, which I still have not waited in line for. Is it worth it? Okay, who said that? I'll talk to you afterwards, okay? It was like a ridiculous line the past few years when I've been there. And I'm trying to hang on to my kids so I don't lose them in the crowd, or I'm trying to like stay with my group of six to 20 people who I've come to the fair with. I still don't understand how you people do that, right? Those of you who go with like 20 people and you're all there, and you're trying to navigate this crowd of life. We gear up for it, but how do we do that on a day-to-day basis in a crowded life? And as I was spending time in scriptures these past few weeks, I noticed that similar to this picture of the state fair, Jesus spent much of his time during his public ministry on earth navigating crowds similar to the one that you saw on the screen. The scriptures are full of it. Like references are just ton. If you start to look through the early gospels that talks about Jesus's life here on earth. 
yet he's also able to be a friend and to fulfill his mission in his imperfect, in his human state, right? Jesus was fully human at this time. Jesus was intentional about creating space in a crowded life to still make room for friendships. And that's what our focus is today, all right? In terms of our friendships, how do we actually create space in our life for that? So we're gonna look really big picture at three different spaces, I wanna say, that Jesus held with people and how he did that and how they kind of connected so that he could be more fully himself as a friend and on mission in the world. Make sense? You got with me? Okay, perfect. All right, and those three things I'm gonna tell you first and then I'm gonna pray are solitude with God, Jesus found his 12, okay? And because of that, he was able to three, care for the crowd. All right, so will you just bow your, hand, your heads with me? If that's weird to any of you, you can still stare open. Jesus hears our prayers when our eyes are open. All right. Well, Holy Spirit, I thank you for each and every person here today. And I actually just really right now want to pray for the relationships that we have in this room with the people that are in this room and outside. I pray, God, that during this time, first of all, Lord, that you could give us peace. You would settle our minds. You would settle our hearts. I actually even just pray right now for just really right now for the people in this room, rest. Not, I don't want you to fall asleep. Please don't do that. But a deep rest of knowing that you are in control. God, whatever words are not from me, just please let them be gone and that you would be ministering to people's hearts. In your heavenly name, amen. All right. So, number one space that we saw Jesus be a lot with as he created space in the crowds is solitude with God. I'm not going to lie. I feel like every time I'm up here, I talk about solitude or some form of it. I was really going to try not to this time. I'm not going to lie. I was like, great, friendships, okay? People are probably going to start tuning me out. I'm not going to do this. And yet, as I dig in the scriptures, as I read, and I see the evidence of it in my own life, and of others, I realize how fundamental it is. So let me just define it first so you kind of see what I mean, okay? So solitude is the practice of being absent from people and things to attend to God. And I think oftentimes as preachers, right, as pastors, and I'm going to admit this, we can skip over the verses when we are talking in the Gospels about how Jesus went off by himself, how he went away from the crowds after healing, because honestly, they don't make the most engaging stories for kids and youth. Okay, kids, we're going to hear today, right, adults, how Jesus went off to sit by himself, all right? And I'm not going to lie. As a pastor, I preach on this, and my other prayer is, God, please help but not everybody's rest to be breaking from volunteering. Like, <laughs> okay. Oh, come on, laugh at that. That's a little funny. Thank you. Okay, right? I'm half kidding. All right. However, it is full of Jesus doing this. I just threw, I went through the Gospels quickly and just threw some scriptures on there that say about how Jesus rested. I'll read a few. The very beginning of his public ministry in Luke 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness to begin his ministry for 40 days. Mark 1, 35, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went to an isolated place to pray. Again, in Mark 6, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. See, we find Jesus constantly at multiple points on his time on earth going by himself to pray, going by himself to find God. And I find in my own life, and I think in the lives of others I respect, that the more complicated and life full comes. And hear this, 
I think it's good that we have full lives. Do we not argue, right? I'm really thankful that I can drive my 10-year-old to soccer after being in a season where everything was canceled. I am so grateful for the relationships in my life that they can text me and call. I am grateful for that. And life is full. That's not a bad thing. But if we're not careful with that fullness, if we're not intentional with it, it can become really crowded and we can lose sight of our most important relationships. See, solitude with God allows us to be more fully restored so we can engage with those closest and farthest away from us. Uh, Henry Nouwen, phenomenal writer, theologian, he has a bajillion books if you're interested, but he writes this. He says, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. See, if you know me, I like to be prepared, okay, and I like a plan. I've become much better, actually, the older I get, because I realize life almost never goes to plan. Does anybody realize that? Yeah, like, it's just great, right? And, but still yet, there's this illusion of control that I have as a human being, right? Because I do have a full life, right? I'm a parent, I wear lots of hats, I'm an employee, I'm a mom, I'm a friend, right? And so the way I show up, I can control, but yet the overarching of how I am, I don't realize how I'm showing up unless I'm actually aware of who I am. And what I have found is intentionally taking, and I'm gonna talk about how we do this practically, moments and pieces of solitude in a crowded crowd, in a crowded life, makes me aware of who I am, of how I'm showing up so I can be better to the friendships and relationships that I have around me. Now, to some of you, you are like, oh, this is great. She's talking about friendships. I'm such an introvert. I don't want to engage more with people, but I can do solitude. And to others, you're like, this is not what I came here today for. Like, this sounds terrible. My husband and I are two totally different people. His idea of solitude is two times a year going to a cabin with no electricity, no running water, like nothing, and he sits and he writes or he sleeps for 24 hours. That makes me sick to my stomach, the thought of that. I am not gonna lie, right? Like, I, I'm serious. Like, I'm not even gonna try to pretend. To me, even the fact of being in a house where it's silent or the car without noise can give me the heebie-jeebie sometime. There's this constant noise that I like to have around because then I actually don't have to be aware of what's going in my mind. Does that make sense? But as I have been walking with Jesus and learning, the invitation is, hey, Jesse, but do you trust me enough to be silent with me for a little bit? Hey, Jesse, can you trust me enough to turn off the noise, even just for a few minutes? So here's my question to you. I think this makes it a little bit more attainable, unless you're like my husband, Josh, who loves to do this, which is great. If that is, he comes back a better person, right? What are some areas in your life that you can begin to incorporate solitude into between the noise and crowds of your life? Here's one that I have found kind of by surprise. A year ago, we got a dog. He is now runs the household. He's a one-and-a-half-year-old Havanese poodle mix named Sprout. He runs our household, but he's actually been a gift. If we don't walk him twice a day, he chews on everything because he gets bored. He has ruined my most two expensive shoes, okay? He has a very high taste in fashion, let's just say that, and the most expensive Legos in my son's room, too, actually. He only goes for the mechanical ones. It's kind of uncanny. So we have to walk our dog twice a day. Here's the hesitant, here's my, uh, my engaging in that. Great, I can make another phone call. Great, I can listen to this podcast while I'm walking the dog. Great, 
I can type on my phone my grocery list for what I'm doing. And God just said, or what if you just walk? What if you just walk and there's no noise around you? And here's what I have found. And Josh and I, my husband and I will take it at different times. My favorite times are after work and I let him out and he's excited to go for a walk and it's before I pick up the kids and here's what I find myself doing. I'm trying to like make it simple. Does that make sense here? Okay. I take a few deep breaths and I just walk for 15 minutes with the dog. And I don't have an agenda of my thought process. I don't even try to pray sometimes. And I come back, and you know what? Most of the time I, I realize that most of the issues and problems of my day are not as big as they seem. And all of the things I was worried about being not in control of, God and some has said, hey, Jesse, do you remember? I've got this. See, it's not that I'm changed. It's just that I'm reminding that God is in control in the chaos. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, some of you, the idea of solitude feels great. You could try a minute or two just sitting there. But how I'm kind of trying to frame it is how can we start eliminating a little bit of noise in our life so we can actually be aware of how we're showing up and feeling? Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right. And, you know, if you want to get a dog, it's a great excuse for it. I'm just going to say we love our dog. All right. Jesus did this, and I think that's what he did. He was under a tremendous amount of stress during his time on earth. I think that's one of the reasons he went to solitude with God. He needed to remind himself who was in control of his life. Now, but we can't stop there, okay? That's in contingent, all right? It helped Jesus show up better to the crowds in his place, and it's also how we show up. And so we're going to talk about the next space Jesus found him. He's got it solitude with God, but Jesus spent an enormous amount of time as well with 12 imperfect human beings, his disciples. So early in the Gospels, Jesus is doing actually what I think is a lot of experimenting. He knows his mission on earth, right? He's come to heal the sick, he's, come, he's sick, he's come to proclaim the good news, and he knows eventually he's going to be dying on the cross for our sin, all right? And so he sets out to do this. But in those first few chapters, especially if you look at Mark, he's not doing it that well because there are so many crowds around him. I love this scene at one point. His mom is like trying to bang on the door because there's so much crowds in this house that she's worried that her son Jesus isn't eating. Like I can think of today, it's like the fire codes would be ridiculous, right? They were overcrowded. And it gets so bad to one point that in Mark 3, it says, Jesus went off with his disciples, and disciples means like his big group of followers. So I'm sure there were, there were multiple here. He hadn't called his 12 yet to the sea to get away. But a huge crowd from Galilee trailed after them, swarms of people who had heard the reports and had come to see for themselves. He told his disciples to get a boat ready so he wouldn't be trampled by the crowd. He had healed many people, and now everyone who had something wrong was pushing and shoving to get near and touch him, right? Jesus' ministry is not going well. He's about ready to get pushed off the beach into a boat. He can't do what he came to do. And if I were thinking, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, God, what is going on? Like, I can't do what you've asked me to do. So cue solitude. Jesus, after this event happens, Jesus heads up to the mountain to pray, all night, and it tells us in Luke that what that Jesus went to the mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. And at daybreak, he called together all his disciples and chose 12 of them to be his apostles. And if you've been around church for any amount of time or not, these were the 12 individuals 
who followed him everywhere. He taught them. He ate with them. He shared with them. Some of them eventually went on to betray him in the worst possible way. And he, these are the people he forgave. See, Jesus needed to set some structure to his relationships in order to fulfill the mission and purpose he had. In order to reach the crowds, to preach the good news, to heal the sick, he had to have these people 12 closest to him to confide in, to pray with, to eat with, to do life with. And they got so close that in fact, in John 15, 15, it tells us that Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. No, I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. See, Jesus lived an incredibly crowded life. Even with the 12, it still said the crowds were following him. However, that there were 12 that he were close to. And he didn't have that capacity that he shared with that 12 to do that with everybody. And my friends, this is kind of a weird thing to hear from the stage. So hear my heart on. We don't need to be close friends with every single person we interact with and meet. Does that make sense? We frankly don't have the capacity for it. And I know that seems really simple and basic, but I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that. So here's my question today. Who are your 12? Maybe it's your three, maybe it's your six, maybe it's your 10, but who are the people in your life that you are intentionally investing in and intentionally receiving from, all right? Because just like if Jesus needed 12, man, you and I need our 12 as well. And I think we all have different definitions of being a close friend, but I found this quote again by Henry Nowen. He made it into the sermon a lot. I think it was my last quote that just brought tears to my eyes and it's gonna be on stage because I think it really gets to the heart of what we're talking about today. And it says, a friend is more than a therapist or a confessor, even though a friend can sometimes heal us and offer us God's forgiveness. A friend is that other person with whom we can share our solitude, our silence, and our prayer. Excuse me. A friend is that other person with whom we can look at a tree and say, isn't that beautiful? Or sit on the beach and silently watch the sun disappear under the horizon. With a friend, we don't have to say or do something special. With a friend, we can be still and know that God is there with both of us. Two of my very, very dearly best friends. I had the fortune of meeting my first day as a college freshman, so I was 18 years old. And they're truly like one of the biggest gifts of my life. Um, because we have walked through so much over the past 20 years, we have cared and we have cheered each other on, and we've also hurt each other deeply, right? Because you can't be close to somebody for 20 years, I think, without doing both the good and hurting each other unintentionally. And it was, I think it was about a, two years ago, uh, we, the three of us had gathered for dinner, you know, trying to text the like 18 checks chain to try to find a time, you know, in two months, does anybody else relate to that, to meet, right? And we were sitting there and my friend, one of my friends just looked at me and she said, Jesse, I'm kind of surprised you came. And I went, well, why? There was like an 18 thread text, you remember? Like I said I was gonna be there. And she goes, well, yeah, but your life has just been so crowded lately and I get it, I'm not mad, but you've, you've canceled almost every other time. We've tried to make plans, and so I just now assume that you're too busy. It gutted me. Like, this friend had walked through me in some of my darkest times. She had been a champion for me. We had offered and extended forgiveness, and I just sat there, and I was like, I am so sorry. Like, 
she, I wasn't even aware my life had gotten so crowded and busy. And she's like, well, no, it's okay. I love you. I was like, I recognize that. But still, like, will you forgive me? See, I had gotten lost in my own crowdedness, and I hadn't realized I hadn't been showing friendship. See, God created us not to be alone. And I think sometimes we forget that friends are a part of not being alone. And friendship was a gift. We're not supposed to do it. And once Jesus called his 12, though, he didn't stop engaging in the crowds, which we're going to talk about that. He just approached it differently. Being friends with, with 12 people, if it's at your 10 or your 9, doesn't mean that we don't engage the crowd. It means we just have a safe place to go to. And what it also means is we can't stop working on those friendships like I had. Make sense? Sorry, the teacher in me comes out. I have to check for understanding now and then, okay? See, Jesus was intentional with solitude. He was intentional with finding his 12. And because of that, he then had capacity to care for the crowd. See, as I read through the scriptures and I read some commentaries, they, they said as we unpack the crowds, well, who was actually in these hundreds or sometimes thousands of people that would follow Jesus? So some of these people in the crowd were genuinely individuals that believed in Jesus. They had heard his teachings. Maybe they had been healed by him, and they're like, man, we are going to follow this Jesus anywhere. Others had heard about it, and they're like, oh, Jesus is going to show up here? I'm really curious. Like, I'm just going to come check this out. And then there was also crowds, this one commentary said that was like, they're like, oh, wait, there's a big crowd over there. I'm going to go check that out. Like, they had no idea what was going on. Similar, I think, to how now a lot of people who are Taylor Swift fans are watching football. I mean, I know the joke is old, but it's just too fun, isn't it? Like, in this day of age, I think it's hysterical, okay? So one day, Jesus finds himself with a large crowd, but this time, he's already called his 12 disciples, and they are with him. And let's see how this goes different than the first time when he almost got pushed into a boat, Okay? So we find this in Luke 9, 11 through 17. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Late in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to him and said, send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There is nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, no, you feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Or are you expecting us to go and buy food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterwards the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Do you see that difference there? Jesus had the capacity to not only be with the crowd, but to serve them. And this is a much different scene than earlier when he had no capacity See, his heart for the masses had still been the same. His heart hadn't changed, but he had the capacity because he had these 12 close friends, these disciples who were with him, who were doing life with him, who were helping him to carry out the mission. And because of being intentional with God and these 12 friends, he could then distribute and feed the masses. See, Jesus spent his life with the crowd. I talk about solitude and being close to our 12 not to negate 
our need to still reach out to others, but because it is because of those relationships that allows us the capacity to do that. See, Jesus was always with people. He chose the people that nobody else would sit with. He looked to people and he gave them the time of day because he had margin. And he calls us to do the same as Gary spoke so well about. He asks us, he asks us the invitation to live a life of friendship, to also care for the crowd. Okay? And by doing that, we can be friends and we create space in the crowd. Uh, I don't know. How many of you have, were, uh, have not been born in Minnesota? I'm just curious here. Okay, so look at how many of this. So I was born in Minnesota, and did you hear that accent? Wow, that came out. I actually grew up in northern Minnesota, so I, sometimes the, real, the accent really comes out. And my husband grew up in Minnesota. I, I, I don't want to say never. I think we'll probably live in Minnesota the rest of our life. So we, we've had family and, and, and friends nearby. But one thing I have learned the past year is that uh, it's really hard if you were not born in the state of Minnesota to make friends. Uh, I've heard that from people here at church, but um, also just from a friend that I have made who's not from Minnesota. She opened my eyes to this quote. I had never heard of it. Maybe you guys have. And it said, Minnesotans will give you directions anywhere. Has anybody heard this? Except to their house for dinner. Okay? And when she told, and it was, a, so my son had befriended her son a few years ago, and so we reached out to her, you know, we, we were playing at the playground, and we've become really good friends, and she told me this quote, and at first, at first I thought she was joking. Like, I really did, and she goes, no, Jesse, it's true. You can't tell me how many people I have met through kids, through, they go to, they go to a, like, through church, through, like, and they're active, and she said, and people are like, oh, yeah, we'll get together and you're the only person who has ever invited us over. And I say that not to talk well about myself, because do you know what I mean? But it's been so eye-opening, right? Uh, as to say, hey, do we become so crowded with our close set of friends that we can't re reach out? Uh, one of the things we talk a lot about at church, and if you've been around church for a long time, is small group. Meeting together with people uh, outside of Sunday. And my husband and I have been involved and led various groups over the year. And about six months ago, we both felt like God kind of saying to us, hey guys, I think it's time for you to lead a small group again. And at first I was like, really God? Like haven't I gotten my check marks off at church? Like pastor, check. I preach sometimes, check. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, when you're thinking about serving, I mean, and he's like, no, Jesse. He's like, because you're never going to outgrow the need to invite people in and open yourself up to new people. And like, I sh this is one of those things that I should know by now. We just, we've had our third group, and it's this mix of people who we've known some for a long time. Some are brand new. And I'm not going to lie, when 4 o'clock on Saturday comes, all I want to do is sit and watch reruns of Project Runway. I don't know why I'm into it, but that's what I want to do. It dates me, I know. But we're cleaning the house, you know, we're throwing in pizzas to the oven, and every Saturday when they come and they leave at 8.15, I am changed. Because there is still something that happens when you sit around a table with a group of people you, you kind of know but you don't know, you talk about stuff, you share prayer requests where their kid's running around or sometimes it's quiet, the dog is eating food off the floor, and there's something that God created us in us that we are in need of that. 
And it will never, and I actually had to apologize to God and just say, God, I'm so sorry. I thought I was actually past this. And he goes, you're never going to be past that, Jesse. So you have solitude with me so we can be aware of how we're showing up, right? Because God loves us and he wants us. He's like, you don't need to negate your 12, Jesse. You've got some solid friends. Pour into them and leave space. And let those relationships, let those two relationships fuel you to be able to go and show up and care for the crowd. See, there's a comfort in the people we know, right? In these times, there's a comfort that I just want to draw in and I place it. And I think our opportunity and our challenge from God is don't let that comfort turn into complacency, right? We're living a both-and life. We're receiving and we're giving. Um, about five years ago, my mom died of stage four uh, cancer. And uh, she, she was, there was this process of dying for about 11 months where she would continually, her health would deteriorate. And so the last few months of her life, she was basically in a bed. She needed 24-hour care. She was in massive, massive amounts of pain and, and had to really ration her time um, really well. And I think it was a few months before she died, um, I called her usually twice a day. And I was talking to her in the morning, and, and her name was Nyla. And she goes, well, I said, how are you today, Mom? And she goes, well, I'm annoyed at God. And I went, well, that makes sense. I mean, I think anybody in your stage would probably be slightly annoyed with God. And she goes, I'm not about the cancer, honey. Like, I'll always be annoyed with him at that. She goes, no, he told me that I still needed to see people. And I went, oh. I said, okay, well, well what do you mean? And she goes, well, she had these, these letters. She really wanted to write this writing. And, and her energy was really limited. I mean, she, it, it, now looking back, I'm shocked at how much she was able to do. And as her world got smaller, the people around her got smaller too, right? She only wanted, and she goes, well, I really want to see you guys. I want to see the kids. But I just, there's so many people who want to see me. And I get it. You know, I'm going to die soon. But like, for those of you who knew my mom, you could totally, I'm not making it up the way she talked about that, okay? And, and she goes, but, so I was kind of arguing with God. And he goes, Nyla, I don't care how much time you have left on this earth. You're never going to outgrow the need for people in your life. And it's not like the floodgates open and suddenly, you know, hundreds of people were tramping through the house. But what, sh what I watched her do is say, okay, I'm going to take some of the precious time I have left. And I'm not going to be afraid to open myself up to new friendships and relationships with people we come our way. We had a lot of people come into her life that way. Hospice is a wonderful thing. There's friendships she made with social workers who would walk in. And there's one in particular that it was exhausting. We were, for those of you who are caregiving, if you're ever caregiving for somebody, I would love to pray for you. It's exhausting, side note, okay? But there was this one 20-year-old. We, we had to hire some help. And long story short, her name was Caitlin, and she was a in her early 20s, and my mom was resistant. She goes, no, I only want people. And I said, Mom, I think you're going to like her. And it almost brings tears to my eyes thinking about it. Caitlin walked her through the last two months in her life in a way that nobody else could have. She sat with her during hospice visits. She was actually there when the hospice nurse looked at my mom and said, Nyla, I think you've only got days left now at this point. She was there in one of her, she wasn't there at her last breath, she was there. And at her funeral, I remember her coming up to me and saying, I think Nyla's going to be one of the best friends in my life, and I've only known her for two months. 
And I remember my mom saying before she, before she drifted off, she said, can you just tell Caitlin, I only knew her two months, but she's one of my best friends too. And I say that, not to make us all cry, okay? Sorry. But I say that because I had to learn that lesson. I had to learn that lesson of saying, hey, God, I'm actually not done inviting people into my life. As crowded and as full as I want to keep, there's actually somebody out there. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Okay, <laughs> that's a good thing, okay? <laughs> my mother's going, Jesse, in heaven right now. So here's my question to you, okay, and to all of us. Which space is God inviting you in today in a fresh and new way? Maybe that's solitude with God. Maybe you're like, Jesse, why am I always here when you preach and you talk about solitude, okay? Not just me. Try it. Where's some noise that you can get out of your life? And honestly, not because God asks us to do it, which I think he does, but because you can receive his love and peace through it. Does that make sense? Okay. Close friends. Are there friends in your life that maybe you've had a hard time with that you just need to go and forgive? Or maybe it's saying, hey, you know what? Maybe it's even just saying, sending a text and saying, you've been a great friend. I so appreciate it. I just need to let you know that. To care and cultivate those close friendships, that's not a bad thing. When Jesus asks us to go to the crowd, he doesn't ask us to negate those. Does that make sense? And then the third thing, this is one I felt actually kind of strongly for. Where is God asking you to care for the crowds, but differently, where is he asking you to give up some of your time to care for the crowds? Does that make sense? I think one of the things when you're walking through a crowded thing at the state fair, it takes a lot of time to get through that crowd, doesn't it? I really wanted that mini donuts. It's going to take a little bit of time, right? Does that make sense? So, ooh, I ended on time, didn't I? Yay! Okay, here's what we're going to do. Can you guys stand up? We're going to sing a song. I'm just going to let us kind of sit in the spirit of worship for a little bit. We've got enough time, and then I'll come back at the end to dismiss.